welcome to those of you who joined us a little bit um, a little bit after 7.15. Nice to see you all. As I said at the beginning, nice to uh, nice for me to resume this uh, familiar posture and familiar place, place being uh, Zoom, but more than that, uh, this this group or, or Sangha that I've been um, uh, practicing with for so many years. I think in... It, I think in Boston since 2014, if I'm correct. Um, and with some of you longer than that still. Um, so there's, um, this, this time of living together and, uh, during a pandemic, uh, still feels so strange sometimes very, uh, very surreal. And I find these uh, times of coming together uh, in the familiarity of that to break through the strangeness sometimes for me. Um, and I, I had a uh, an occasion this week to, not that this is not normal for me, but in a particularly distinct way, I really missed being in the city. Um, and particularly uh, being at a physical place where we, uh, many of us, I know everybody's not, uh, everybody doesn't live in Boston, but particularly missed having a physical location to go to, uh, <clears throat> sit together, practice. And this, by the way, has nothing to do with my talk tonight. Um, <laughs> Um, miss meeting the kind of people that might show up at a Dharma center. People who've never come before and, you know, the kind of conversations that might happen at a coffee shop near the Dharma center, you know, before or after class. Um, <clears throat> so this this provides, I don't know about you, but, and I don't want to make assumptions about your own experience, but uh, this brings me a little closer to that. So I really appreciate the opportunity to to sustain this form together. And for those of you who might be interested in, in knowing uh, construction on the new meditation center, Boston Meditation Center uh, in Somerville, uh, resumed on Monday of this week. So tomorrow will be day five of um, of this new construction, this sort of mid-COVID uh, construction stage. And we're moving slowly because we're only having a few uh, contractors, few people in the building at a time. Uh, but we're, we're aiming ourselves toward completion once again with people on the ground and and I'll go in tomorrow uh, to check on, to, to meet with some of the folks and check on the center and um, pick up the junk mail in the mailbox and four months of junk mail. 
Yeah, and I can report out, you know, in the coming weeks what what I'm learning about the construction timetable and and just how things are doing there. I look forward to to giving you some some more information when I have more information. I'm going to talk uh, tonight about uh, not-self or the not-self nature of experience. Um, well, when the Buddha was asked whether there was a self or not, um, he chose not to answer, uh, opting to avoid any, uh, even remotely, any analytical response to this, to this inquiry. And I was thinking about this over the course of the, the week and perhaps knowing that concepts are part of the problem and part of the construct of self, he didn't want to add further, uh, further confusion and make for more obstacles on the path to liberation. It's a, um, wisdom is so subtle already. Our, um, our mistaken views, um, so deeply rooted. Uh, so many ideas and beliefs in the way already. Tanasaru Bhikkhu, who some of you uh, are familiar with or, or may have heard of, uh, was asked at one point to lead a, a, a retreat. Um, and uh, a retreat that focused on not-self. And he said toward the beginning of that retreat, uh, during one of his early uh, Dharma talks, he said, quote, if you remember only one thing from these talks, remember this, that the Buddha, in teaching not-self, was not answering the question of whether there is or isn't a self. This question was one he explicitly put aside. Yet, <clears throat> as you know, Buddhist wisdom teachings invite us to consider that who we think we are is not quite accurate. The idea that there is a basic misconception about who we are, the idea is that there is a basic misconception about who we are that has profound, widespread implications on our lives. What makes this teaching hard to fully grasp is that the characteristic of not-self is very hard to see, often completely invisible, in fact. It's, it's not on our radar. If we, had a, if we had a field within which we could see um, and that was a, we, we, we referred to that as the conventional field all of this information that pertains to wisdom is beyond the boundaries of that. So it's, it's out of view. What we 
do see, however, and also experience routinely is a very certain, solid sense of self. Uh, the me or the I to whom everything happens. The me or I that has a past and presumably some type of future. Uh, we might recognize this me or I as the entity that is listening right now, hearing my voice, feeling hungry, feeling satiated, feeling hot, feeling a little bit too cool from the air conditioning, feeling tired, feeling energized, feeling excited to hear the Dharma, feeling bored. feeling curious. You might recognize this me or I as the entity that's generally interested in Buddhist teachings and meditation practice. Um, and the entity that is trying to make the best life possible for oneself. So one of the questions I didn't, um, this is not explicitly in my notes, but I think one of the questions that is a part of this exploration has to do with if we can, if we can recognize the self uh, in so many ways, how is it that we come to recognize the not self nature of being? So you can, you can maybe hold that as a kind of uh, contemplation, uh, inquiry question. And you might have already had um, your own experiences of that. The word for not-self in the Pali language is anatta, anatta, not-self. Any discussion, as I alluded to at the beginning, uh, of, of anatta is inherently problematic, or at the very least, as a conversation, it's it's going to be incomplete. It's going to be um, it's going to be unfinished. Something is invariably never tied up or brought together in a concrete or conclusive way. Talking about it doesn't typically bring about a full understanding. Though there are accounts of people who were fully liberated during the Buddha's time upon hearing the Dharma taught. As a general rule, though, talking about the Dharma is often very helpful and very much a part, an important part, of learning on the Buddhist path. Though, again, this is a topic whose comprehension is generally agreed to be experiential. This is why, in part, historically, there has been a place both for meditation and reflection or, or study on the Buddhist path. What we are talking about when we explore anatta is perception. 
how we see the world, how we see ourselves, and also how we see other people. If we enter into the Buddhist path or tradition or meditation practice, we have to assume, and I hope that you hope, that your perceptions will change because that's fundamentally what we're actually, that's what fundamentally what we're trying to do. Um, we're trying to shift our perceptions in a way that are more consistent with how the world really works. And yet, often, one of the things we learn, one of the insights that we have, is that we go about the world trying to prove our perceptions right. This is a great um, um, exercise of the self, you know, proving our perceptions to be um, better than somebody else's. Some kind of a way of validating ourselves. If anatta were to be framed as a hypothesis, it would state that we all have an illusory sense of self, almost as if a trick has been played on us. One of the main purposes of meditation practice and Dharma study is to test this hypothesis for ourselves. This is true of the Dharma in its entirety. It is comprised of a learning model that says, one, listen. Okay, listen. Uh, this is often um, referred to as hearing the Dharma. So we're, we're hearing the Dharma right now. Two, reflect. Okay, contemplate or consider the Dharma's meaning based on uh, what you've come to understand so far, certainly based on your own experience in life and based on your own experience in meditation practice. And third, meditate and realize for yourself. So all of the Dharma is comprised of these different hypotheses. And at the core of that is the hypothesis that we all have an illusory sense of self. Um, We've been tricked, right? We've been tricked. Uh, one of the suttas uh, from the Samyutta Nikaya, Anatta Lakana Sutta, is translated as the discourse on the not self characteristic the discourse on the not-self characteristic. So let's just pause here for a moment um, and think about this language, the discourse on the not-self characteristic. Characteristic, to me, is really important because it suggests that anatta is indicative of an inherent quality rather than a total absence of something. 
as we become more attuned to anatta within our own experience, can you raise your hand if you can hear me? You can hear me, okay. I just got a signal weak pop-up menu here. As we become more attuned to anatta within our own experience, we begin to identify with the not-self nature of our being or the not-self characteristic of our being rather than many of our long-held views and perceptions. So this is to underscore this, to state that many of our long-held views and perceptions don't represent the true nature of things as they are, anatta being closer to that. Through meditation, though meditation will make an important contribution to our comprehension, even a basic understanding of anatta can help us relate to difficult moments with greater skill and ease. We don't have to wait. We don't have to wait until all our conceptual views fall away and we're left in this remarkable, mysterious place we've read about, we've been waiting for where finally we see ourselves in the world entirely different. You can call this what you like, enlightenment, waking up, nibbana, nirvana. <clears throat> and I, I, I think that we, we hear these very lofty teachings and there's this state or stage of realization and it's over there. We are over here trying to get there. Um, I think that that view is problematic. Um, I think there's some profound insight um, in this notion that this, this is all there is. This meaning whatever you're experiencing right now. We see this language a lot in the Zen tradition. This, this sense of, um, you know, there's nothing more than sitting on this couch, listening to this guy with this fuzzy beard who can't get a haircut, like just, you know, talking, talking. Talk. There's nothing else. There, there's, we're not going to get any more information in a sense. We have to wake up with what we have. So there's a, um, there's a clue in the Dhammapada. There's a clue that helps us reflect on this, um, helps us talk about this idea of anatta. In the Dhammapada, it is written, Better it is to live one day, 
seeing the rise and fall of things than to live a hundred years without ever seeing the rise and fall of things. Better it is to live one day seeing the rise and fall of things than to live a hundred years without ever seeing the rise and fall of things. I don't think what is being said is that overall one day of insight is better than a hundred years of its absence. But rather that one day or even one moment perhaps of seeing the truth of impermanence could have a lasting transformational impact on the rest of one's life. Rising and falling in this passage from the Dhammapada is a reference to the law of change or impermanence. This teaching, which is related to anatta, this teaching, which is an idea itself presented to us, and this truth, which is realized experientially, stands in contrast to how we normally view the world both the material and sensory world, including mental or psychological states, are unsubstantial and lack constancy. Things are not as solid as we thought. Here's what we are being asked to consider. If this applies to everything, doesn't this also then apply to the self? This experience of me or I that we're often having, that we're having probably right now. To identify with the not-self nature of our being is to recognize impermanence, the truth that the world is always changing. The world of sensations, the world of thoughts, the world of feelings, the world of sights, the world of sounds, and the world of tastes. I think here we see just how practical mindfulness is. The entire sensory world which is everything, is not solid, not fixed, not predictable. This sensory world is also the stuff that, when combined, make up the self. When we experience this me or I to which things happen, uh, both wanted and unwanted, what is taking place is a fast-changing parade of sensations that make it appear as if the person experiencing the cessations is different or separate from them. This is consciousness. This is the, the sense that things are happening to someone. If things appear to happen to me, they also present as separate from me. This is how the illusion of a separate self is created. 
This is the problem Buddhism is trying to address. If something is separate from me and I don't like it, I will then try to control it, manage it, outsmart it, figure it out. If something is identified as likable and therefore wanted, I will try to figure out how to keep it from disappearing and or I will try to make it happen again. These are the things we strive to repeat. We try to repeat these things that are um, wanted. This illusion is so believable that we don't only want to repeat wanted experiences as often as possible, we want to string them together in a never-ending chain of pleasant experiences that leads to lasting, unbroken happiness. One pleasant chain link connected to another pleasant chain link connected to another pleasant chain link connected to another pleasant chain link, etc. So, likewise, we want to remove all unpleasant things so that only pleasant things remain. Only pleasant chain links will remain if we get rid of the unpleasant ones. This, uh, this has great importance, uh, both in terms of how suffering is created and alleviated. From these two related views come the birth of aversion and grasping the source of dukkha or distress, we are told in the early teachings. What this means, or one thing that this might mean, is that nothing exists in a vacuum, as the idiom goes. The entire world of material form, um, such as a car or a tree, our own body with its constituent parts and different feelings, to our mental states, such as joy, hatred, fear, happiness, are existing based on the existence of other factors. The Dharma teaches that all conditioned phenomena rise and pass away. <clears throat> Conditioned phenomena are all the sensory experiences that are born as a result of the existence of something else. Remember, nothing in a vacuum. The answer to what is conditioned is everything. The answer to what rises and falls away is everything. The answer to whether the self is conditioned or not is yes, the self is conditioned. The Buddha may not have said yes or no to whether there's a self, but it seems to be that he said yes, the self is conditioned. Therefore, the conclusion is that the self rises and falls away. 
is not permanent, solid, or independent. It is rather a composite of various phenomena. Those phenomena, we are told, are not personal, not me, not I, not mine. They are simply the temporary arising of a conditioned sensory world. The problem is, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, we typically cannot see this. Remember, they're, they're outside the boundaries of the conventional view. Hence, we are stuck with an illusory view. For example, um, cars exist because of metal, plastic, glass, engineering techniques, gasoline, uh, and therefore natural resources from nature, highly evolved computer software, the construction of factories, people who work in those factories. Trees exist because of soil, enough light and photosynthesis, the right amount of water, the absence of people who could have cut the trees down, or the existence of policy that prevented the cutting down of the tree. Just making sure no one fell asleep yet. The existence of our body required birth. The existence of other bodies who made possible our own birth. That those other bodies survived a hostile world long enough for us to be conceived. That we have taken care of our bodies well enough to be alive. That we didn't die by accident or injury. Our mental or psychological state hinges on everything from early childhood experiences our current ability to self-regulate and co-regulate, even the weather, the health and companionship of people who are close to us, financial resources which are lacking and contribute to stress or are abundant and allow us to relax, the existence of our ideas and beliefs are due to life experience, the communities and culture we were born into and spent time in, our exposure to new ideas over time, our access to opportunities and novel experiences, our race, gender, class, sexual orientation and expression, exposure to religion or spiritual traditions. Once we see clearly that the experience of self is comprised of nothing more than sensations, thoughts, feelings, sights, sounds, tastes, then we also realize that we are not solid, fixed, permanent. We are not what we thought we were. Of this list of examples, the most subtle from this list is that of ideas and beliefs. How we see the world is something that we take granted and rarely question. Our views generally constitute our truth, the way things are. Conventions of thought 
become stand-ins for reality, and we are unable to see that. We meditate to change this, to see more clearly, to replace this illusory view with wisdom. If the self is separate, it is also vulnerable. Remember one of the predominant views and experiences that we have as we go through our life is that of a separate self, right? So what is the problem with the view of self or with the, what is the problem with the view of a, of a, of a separate self? Well, again, if the self is separate, it is also vulnerable. If the, self, if the self is separate, it has something to lose or gain. If the self is separate, vulnerable to loss, it must protect itself. If the self must protect itself and is therefore, it is therefore self-important, central, front and center. Has to be, right? Makes a lot of sense. The, the more subtle problem at play is that illusory views make sense. They make total sense. So the self must protect itself and is therefore important, central, front and center. This is a matter of life and death. Not only of the life and death of happiness and suffering, but sometimes of our very existence. The confusion born of this illusory view, the belief in our own self-importance, blocks kindness and it blocks compassion. The two are not easily compatible. We do not live in a world marked by kindness and compassion because we do not live in a world where wisdom prevails. We do not live in a world where wisdom prevails because we do not live in a world where their illusory view of a self has been transcended and transformed. There's a term for this in the Pali, uh, avidya, sometimes translated as ignorance. Not seeing clearly the illusion of a separate self is to not see clearly how suffering is created and alleviated. We don't see the Four Noble Truths. Not seeing the Four Noble Truths is avidya, ignorance, or sometimes just not knowing, which is my preference, not knowing. Uh, we don't know how to be wise. We just don't see how to be wise. Through meditation, also through Dharma study, with sustained attention, the solid self becomes permeable. Maybe some of you experience something like this in your meditation practice tonight. 
This is not limited to a fresh grasp of ideas or Buddhist concepts. We begin to see the arising and passing away of we begin to see the arising and passing away of mental and physical phenomena. We begin to see conditioning, how grasping and aversion increase unpleasant sensory experiences, and how the non-reactivity of mindfulness smooths over the coarseness and harshness of mind and brings an ease to life events. Maybe some of you experience some of that ease during tonight's practice, finding permission or guidance in the instructions to let phenomena come and go. If the breath recedes to the background and noise comes forward, allow that to happen. If a thought passes through, allow the thought to pass through. Mind and body coming and going. The underlying question that we're sitting with when we practice this way is where's the self? Over time, we begin to feel a greater sense of spaciousness and we are not at the center of that spaciousness. We become more of a node in a network of complexly arranged nodes. We stop trying to control the coming and going of all the nodes and also how they impact one another. We watch the natural movement of impermanence at play. We do not manipulate, we give up control. Selfishness is not compatible with anatta. We are not what we thought. We are not at our core anything that resembles how we conventionally experience ourselves. And this is precisely why this teaching is so hard to grasp, because we do experience ourselves as solid. We have a past and a perceived future. It feels as if we exist on a linear progression from childhood to adulthood to old age. All the events that happen at those stages happen to me. This is how the I is born. This I is substantiated by our name, our social roles, our unique emotional and psychological states, our gender and race and sexual orientation, our income and social status, our wants and needs, our hopes and our expectations. Being free of all of this, everything from narrow and binary gender scripts to self-images based on conventional markers of success, like wealth or status, will be aided by deep insight into the not-self nature of being. Personal, communal, social, collective change will be greatly supported by the deep, profound, transformative insight that the Dharma taught. In the Dhammapada, it is written, all Dharmas are not self. When one sees this with discernment and grows disenchanted with stress, 
This is the path to purity. And lastly, to close, a short passage from Sister Kema, Ayakema. So we can be quite accepting of the fact that since we are not Arhants, fully awakened beings, we still have greed and hate, want and desire. It isn't a matter of blaming oneself for having them. It's a matter of understanding where these come from. They come from the delusion of me. I want to protect this jewel, which is me. That is how they arise. But with the continued practice of meditation, the mind can become clearer and clearer. It finally understands. And when it does understand, it can see transcendental reality. Even if seen for one thought moment, the experience is of great impact and makes a marked change in our lives. <laughs>